This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein at GoGo. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got a very special guest today. We've got Neil deGrasse Tyson, who we'll be speaking to in just a few minutes. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Welcome mm, back. Morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. You've got good news for us today or bad news? You, you've been giving us all this climate stuff. It's depressing. I'm going to try for some good news today. <laughs> we'll see how we go with that. Dr. Jen? Morning, Dr. Shane. And I only ever have good news. Is that right? Well, you know, someone's got to be optimistic around here with the state of the world. <laughs> See, that sounds negative. Oh, okay. All right. I'll, Chris I'll KP? To I think the state of the world is tickety boo. <laughs> he's jet lagged, everybody. Yeah, so yeah, he's, he's got no idea what he's talking about. What's going on? Oh, where, where are you again, Chris? What planet are we on? <laughs> what planet? Are we on? Yeah. It's that bad. Well, if, if you don't know, I can't help you. Where did you go? Where did you uh, go? Mainly Iceland. Iceland. And do you know what's you cool skipped about everything between here and there? <laughs> Pretty much tuned out of it. That counts. So, you know what's, what's great about Iceland is, and this is serious, I was looking at the internet, and for at least 48 hours, Iceland's both, both high and low temperatures were warmer than Melbourne's. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, uh, it was a good place to be in winter. Uh, we got it all over Iceland, no doubt about that. Our guest today is Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist, author and communicator of science and the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. Neil, thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R. Well, thank, thanks for having me. And Einstein a go-go, I got, I got to be a part of that. Yeah, it's a great name. We're, we're doing it for about 25 years. I forget about it, but it is a great name from a from a song. Um, yeah, don't, don't grow accustomed to it. Yeah. Be, be, be uh, proud and surprised by it every day. Sounds good. In fact, I don't hear our theme song anymore unless I'm in a supermarket, in which case it totally freaks me out because I feel like I should be doing something else. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, I want to start big, first of all. Um, what, what would you perceive as the greatest sort of scientific achievement over about the last 50 years? Have you, have you got a favorite? Yeah. I would say if you allow me 60 years rather than 50, yeah. I would say the discovery that the heavy elements on the periodic table owe their origin to stars that have manufactured those very elements in their core through thermonuclear fusion, the fusion of light elements into heavy elements, which in the center of a star is exothermic. So it's giving you energy, sustaining the life of a star. The star is in the business of making energy, so it's happy. Everybody's happy. And those very stars that rack up those heavy elements in their core, when they die, they explode. They scatter that enrichment across the galaxy. uh, And that enrichment enters gas clouds that form next generation star systems. If you do this a few times, you then have enough ingredients, enough of the right ingredients to make planets and on, on at least one planet, life. So the sun and the planets carries around the galaxy is a is a later generation star born only four and a half billion years ago but the universe is thir- is nearly 14 billion years ago so uh so we go 14 billion to four and a half billion there's been a lot of generations of these exploding stars to give us the chemical uh, diversity and the chemical enrichment that earth needs that is a discovery of modern astrophysics and it came to us in the 1950s and I think it's one of the greatest gifts of knowledge that science has offered civilization because it is the, it is the awareness that not only are we in the universe, but the universe is in us. Mm. We are not literally, but figuratively stardust. 
Yeah, it's great stuff. Um, Neil, you know, recently the New Horizon spacecraft went plus uh, Pluto, of course, and, and our, our image of that as, I, I suppose in the past we thought it was just a, a, a dead piece of something that got hit by stuff as opposed to the, the complex geology that we found. What, what are your thoughts on that and also on the next um, object that we're heading out to there in the, in the Kuiper Belt um, with, with New Horizons? So I, I detect a Pluto lover among us here. Yeah. <laughs> of course. So uh, I think what happened with Pluto is is a repeating story in the history of science. The less information you have about something, the more simplified is your understanding and your expectations of it. And as you get closer, you find out that, and you, as your data become more becomes more highly resolved as you learn not only what it looks like, but if you can make other kinds of measurements about what something is made of, um, how it interacts with light. There are a lot of different experiments you can do, not just simply what the thing looks like. When you combine all of that, what we have found, just as a general truth, is that the more you know about something, the more complex it turns out to be. And such was the case with Pluto. It was not just a victim of colliding asteroids out there, it actually had processes going on within itself. And that made it very interesting. That made it more of a world, if you will, Mm. Uh, especially for the people who were very upset that Pluto was demoted from its red-blooded planet status to dwarf planet. Um, That sort of, they started coming out of the woodworks again, protesting, trying to get its planetary status reinstated. But yes, everyone was surprised, even the people who had studied Pluto the most. This next object, I know very little about it, um, and I think I've, I've forgotten even its Kuiper Belt identifier, but it was um, the, it was always in the plan for the New Horizons mission to continue beyond Pluto because Pluto was just a flyby. It never had intent of orbiting Pluto the way Cassini orbited Saturn. Mm. Uh, it has to be part of the design of the mission that you know in advance what it's going to do. So it flew by Pluto, and headed off, and there's still some fuel left to make uh, course adjustments so they can come closer to this next object of interest. Neil, do you feel we're in a bit of a golden age of discovery at the moment with regards to the solar system? I, I remember well the Voyager period in the sort of in the 80s and so forth, where we, it just seemed as though everything opened up. But it feels a bit like that's happening again at the moment. I mean, the, the pictures coming back from Juno of Jupiter, we've got the, the new stuff on Pluto, even more from Saturn. It's just an extraordinary time, it would seem. Yeah, so when you live in a period of exponential growth of knowledge, then at any time that you make the assessment, you will say you're living in a golden age. Mm. That's, that's a property of what it is to be on an exponential curve. Just if I, just if I may give an example, if you go back to 1890 or 1895, I have books where there's a preface of a book that says, I had to come out with a second edition because 10 years ago, uh, we, we knew this about the sun, but now we know so much more right. that it's coming in at such a rapid pace. And what had happened over those 10 years, we learned that sunspots were magnetic mm-hmm. and they represented magnetic storms on the sun and that the solar prominences and other uh, behavior are man- magnetically driven. These are big discoveries, but people were celebrating this so much. He said, I've got to write a new book and, and, and and boast about it in the preface. And so so I would say since the Industrial Revolution, we've been on an exponential growth curve. At no time 
are people lamenting how ignorant they are about the natural world. Yeah, right. uh, not in the last 200 years, at least. So, um, uh, so, uh, and even the technological world. I have a newspaper, it's the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, from January 1st of the year 1900. And it, I, and I quote, it says, uh, we've come so far in so many fields, especially in the field of transportation. It would be hard to imagine that advances in transportation in the 20th century would be as great as they were in the 19th century. <laughs> and yet we did. <laughs> they were, for, they were, they were riding high on, on railroads crossing yeah. the continent. They had the, this internal combustion engine car. They had blimps or just coming, just figuring out how to have, how to have, um, uh, you know, hot air balloons to, to move you. And, and, and so they were, they, as far as they were concerned, they were, the bee's knees. And so so when you say, are we living in a golden age? I'll say yes, but that's an eternal fact when you are on an exponential growth curve. Yeah, we're pretty lucky in that regard then. In, in terms of the exploration of the solar system and beyond, a lot of what we've been talking about is, is robotic. Um, but there are big plans, of course, to one day hopefully put a human being on Mars. I mean, where do you sit? in terms of the balance between those two approaches? Because, you know, the, in some sense, we can't afford to do it all. Yeah, well, you can afford to do it all if there's a return on that investment that justifies it. Yeah. So if I can convince you that sending humans to Mars will transform a sleepy country into an innovation nation, if I can convince you of that, if I can convince by the way, maybe I can't convince you, and maybe it's not even true, but based on my read of history, it tells me that if a government invests heavily on a frontier of discovery, that it can transform a country culturally so that people want to become participants on that frontier of discovery. And if that frontier of discovery involves all branches of STEM fields, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, and then you will have people, kids growing up say, I want to discover life on Mars and I want to discover volcanoes on, on Enceladus. I want, and you'll have these ambitions. And all of a sudden, in order to accomplish these ambitions, you have to invent new stuff, mm. new kinds of rockets, new kinds of propulsion, new kinds of landing gear, new ways of growing food, new ways of finding water. Of new ways of extracting water from terrain that was otherwise be arid. All manner of discoveries will unfold and there'll be no shortage of ways in which they can then apply back to earth. The history of this exercise has shown. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that would happen more with people than with just robots. Uh, by the way, when humans landed on the moon, did you know, that we already had a lander on the moon yeah. and the Russians had a rover on the moon. Yeah, we, we weren't first. <laughs> so, no, we weren't first, but the, the, my point is that if humans are also doing something that robots are doing, we all pay attention to the humans. Mm. It, that's just human. That's human nature, it seems. So, so, uh, all I'm saying is if we go into space, with humans, it's because somebody was convinced that the return on that investment will be huge to our economy, to our health, to our security. And so then it doesn't matter how much you spend if the return on investment exceeds it. If you cannot justify a return on the investment, it'll never happen yeah. unless there's a military reason to do so. If China 
said they're going to put military bases on Mars, then the United States will be on Mars 10 months later. Yeah. You know, one month to design, build, and fund a new generation spacecraft and nine months to get there. Mm. War makes money flow like rivers. It does indeed. Neil, in terms of um, science, because we're going through a period at the moment of some turmoil, I suspect, in terms of different governments and the way science is viewed, are we approaching the issue of communicating science the right way? I mean, you're right in the thick of this. How, how do you think it's going with the public? Are we are we making progress or are we losing ground? Yeah, so there seem to be mixed signals out there. I can give no end of examples where science has a greater penetration into the public and pop culture than it ever has. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple of objective measures of this. For example, the success of recent first-run films that were high-budget, high-profile actors, high-profile directors, where the accuracy of science was a fundamental part of the storytelling. And that would involve, for example, the movie Interstellar, the movie Gravity, the movie The Martian, uh, and there are others. Not only that, there are biopics of mm. scientists. Somehow somebody figured out that maybe scientists are humans too. Yeah. And they might have stories worth telling, like all these other stories you told of politicians and royalty and, uh, and drug addicted, uh, uh, rock stars. So, so this tell, and, and the number one show on television in the United States is called The Big Bang Theory. Yep. If you type The Big Bang Theory into a Google search, the number one hit is that TV show. Mm. And number two is the creation of the universe. Yeah. I still haven't figured out whether I like that fact or not. Yeah, it's um, interesting. I can argue both ways, you know, but so this, and, and the success of Cosmos that I had the privilege of hosting, mm. it aired domestically in prime time on a major network and then went around the world via the National Geographic channels in 181 countries and 47 languages. So. That appetite is real. That appetite is there. And so I think it's encouraging for the future of science literacy in our, in our culture and in our civilization more broadly. Meanwhile, we have some people rising to power who don't understand what science is or how and why it works Mm. and are making decisions in the absence of that knowledge. Now that can be that, that if that happens, then that's the unraveling of an informed democracy and that has consequences. So as an educator, I feel it incumbent upon me to alert people of the consequences of their decisions or their indecisions if either are based on a false or an absence of information of what science is and how and why it works. Mm. Neil, if, if you were to give some advice to sort of budding young communicators of science out there, given, given the context you've just put forward, I mean, I mean what, what would it be? What, what style of... Uh, person do you want to see out there pushing science out there into in, you know into the general public but also into politics yeah, that's a great question i don't know that there's one formula i uh different people are different uh, in what they do best as communicators some people are songwriters and they've written songs about science which are kind of fun uh some people are are screen writers and they've written movies about science uh, uh, fictionalized stories, but rely heavily on science. In one example, it was the space between us about the first kid born on Mars and yeah. returns to earth. So, uh, so that's a science communication more broadly. Um, there are uh, people who are better at one-on-one mentoring than are at speaking to large audiences. There are people who are better at who have a, a, a better sense of humor than others. So there are different venues, different ways that can be tapped. 
relative to others. There's some people who are better writers than others. So then you might write a book rather than appear in front of public. If you're not as good at that, or if you have, if you have, um, what do you call it? If you're, um, if you're shy in an audience, there's a word for that. Uh, what's that called? Um, shy? You just, yeah, you're shy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you're just, if you're just shy, yeah. <laughs> I, I forgot there was, uh, there's a, a bigger, there's a, a bigger word, word with more yeah, syllables, yeah. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think you would pick the pathway that best serves what your talents are. And in this world where uh, almost anybody can have access to an audience, for better or for worse, you can find the way to express your talents through those particular channels. Uh, in my case, I enjoy writing, uh, and... Uh, and I, I'm very comfortable in front of a, an audience, even a, a large audience. So I do give public lectures. And I, by the way, uh, that's true for many of my fellow colleagues in astrophysics, because mm. we find ourselves at the center of many people's inquiries. Like if you, if you find yourself sitting next to an astrophysicist on an airplane, yeah, I bet you're going to have questions. Yeah, it's good for fun. him or her. You're going to say, "Are there aliens? Is there God? What's before the Big Bang? What's a black hole?" You're going to ask these questions. I know it in advance. You're going to ask these questions, and so we get these questions perhaps more than other sciences, where people have less native curiosity embedded within them. If you say you're a materials science physicist, okay. I don't know that I have questions I've been harboring all my life to ask you, right? You'll have to explain to me what you do, and then maybe I, I'm curious I can come up with things. But everybody has looked up. Everybody has wondered, where do we come from? Where are we? Where are we going? What am I doing here? What is the meaning of life? And so uh, in my field, we have many people who who are eager to bring their their science education talents, uh, uh, to eager to put them into motion. Now we're almost at the time, so just one last question for you. We started this by talking about the biggest achievement over the last sort of fifty or sixty years. What do you think is the biggest question we still have to to answer in science today? So I'm going to give you a real answer, then I'm going to give you a cop out answer. Okay. Okay. But I'll give you the cop out answer first. My cop out answer is: um, you're thinking that science is all about the big question, whereas for me. The answer to that big question is simply a conduit to a new place to stand where I can ask another round of questions mm -hmm. that right now I've yet to even imagine. Yep. So I'm not thinking that science is, well, when we finally answer those questions, then we'll be satisfied. It's not how I'm approaching this frontier. It's not how I carry forward my curiosity. I, I dream of the questions I don't even know to ask because they would only be available to me once we ask questions that surround us today. So to me, those are not the big questions. Those are only the next questions. And what are they? How did we go from organic molecules to self-replicating life four billion years ago on Earth? Mm. What was around before the Big Bang? Was there a multiverse? Are we living in a simulation? It's very hard to argue against that hypothesis. Are there aliens who are so much smarter than we are that they made a planet called Earth to put us on and we are their zoo in a way no different from how we, being smarter than other animals that we put in a zoo, we put them in some habitat, 
are they self-aware of this habitat or not? Do they even know they're in a zoo, for example? Uh, so uh, I want to know what dark matter is. Most of the gravity of the universe has no known origin. We call it dark matter. We really should call it dark gravity. Uh, dark energy, there's a mysterious pressure in the vacuum of space that is making the universe accelerate in its expansion. We can measure it. We have no idea what's causing it. That's a frontier. Is string theory really, it really should be called a string hypothesis, is it really leading to the theory of everything? Uh, is there one equation from which you can derive all forces of nature? Uh, these are some bordering on philosophy. Um, but at their foundation, it needs smart people answering deep questions. And so these are all the things, these are questions that are, are with us today. Neil, look, it's great chatting to you and uh, we could, I suspect we could do this all day. Um, one physicist to another, but, yeah. um, you've got a lot to do. Have a great time here in Australia. And, um, no doubt some of our listeners will be seeing your show coming up in Melbourne. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R. Thanks. I look forward to that. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. The guest we have in the studio now is Professor Mark Dawson. He's in the Centre for Cancer Research at the University of Melbourne and in the Sir Peter McCallum uh, Department of Oncology there in uh, Parkville. Uh, welcome, Mark, to RRR. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Now, you um, you work in, in cancer, obviously, and in all the sort of uh, various ways in which we're treating it. But in particular, your area is to do with, uh, I, I guess, how genes interact with the environment or how, how we can interact with the genes to and, and various parts of our, our genome to do different things. Tell This is all under this, this sort of umbrella of epigenetics. So tell us a bit about what's happening there, because I know a lot of people probably have this idea that we have a fixed genome and that's it. But, but it changes, doesn't it? It changes with the environment we're in. Absolutely. So, um, you know, there's lots of ways to think about how important epigenetics is. Um, you know, we are a walking embodiment of what epigenetics is. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if you think about the fact that your skin cells, your hair cells, your cells that lie in your stomach and your blood cells all share exactly the same genome. But they have a very different job description. Right, yeah, right. Um, and that reason is because the parts of the genome that <coughs> tells your skin cells what to do or your blood cells what to do, well, they're expressed, um, you know, particularly at the right place at the right time to be able to give that instruction to those cells. Mm. And that, that, that ability to take that instruction manual and then use only the parts of it that are required for a particular cell, well, that's what epigenetics does. Do, do we have an understanding at the moment of, you know, I, I have a new cell and it's sitting in my kidney or it's sitting in my skin or it's sitting in my eye. Do we have an understanding of what tells that cell at the moment or why it suddenly knows I need to become a, a skin cell? I mean, how much do we know? Yeah, quite a lot, actually. Um, you know, we know that a lot of those cues come from the environment around which it lives in, um, what it's being bathed in, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of hormones, cytokines, et cetera, et cetera. And, and those then feed back to the genome to, to, to really give that process some order so that the cell starts to you know, differentiate, make cells, cell decisions that allows it to be the right cell in that environment. Mm. And does it get it wrong sometimes? I mean, I mean, what happens if one of these cells just says, well, you know, I'm supposed to be skin, but I'm, I'm going to be something else? I mean, does that happen in the body? Do we get cells that are in the wrong place at the wrong time? 
we, we sometimes get cells in the wrong place at the wrong time, but a really good example of where we get this wrong is, 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 is cancer, mm-hmm. actually, where, you know, cells start to de-differentiate. They don't take the right environmental cues to differentiate and they get stuck. Um, and, and this process of getting stuck in a more immature state is what we see in a lot of different cancers. Mm. In the body normally, I, I can imagine this is happening in our bodies throughout <laughs> our lives to some degree. So we, we have these errors going on. Does our immune system normally just take care of that? Like if, there, if I've got one of these cells that's supposed to be a you know, particular <laughs> muscle cell or something and it's doing the wrong thing and it all of a sudden you know, is there, needs to be removed, it's one cell, does our immune system just take care of that normally? Is that, is that what should happen? Yes, that's a fantastic question. And I think more and more, especially over the last decade, we've really understood the importance of immune surveillance, mm-hmm. you know, um, where the, the, our immune system, which has been educated for, you know, the duration of our lifetime to recognize things that are foreign, abnormal, and then go away and clear it, you know, the, the, the immune system plays a fundamental role mm-hmm. in clearing these things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So epigenetics as a tool presumably then can be used in cancer treatments, and I, my understanding is this is already happening. How do you, how do you go about using epigenetics to treat cancer? Is there is there a way to sort of stop these cells doing what we don't want them doing? Or what, why don't I start with where we want to get to? Yep, yep, and and tell you that we, that we're still a while away from getting. Mm-hmm. You know, ideally, what we want to get to, if you think about our genome as a barcode, because essentially that's what it is. It's, yep. it's a static entity; it doesn't really change. Um, and then all of a sudden, you get a mutation that drives a cancer cell, and these <coughs> mutations usually serve to turn abnormal genes on or turn genes that help protect the cell off, so-called tumor suppressor genes. Now, it's very hard to correct that process because, as I said, this is pretty much a static entity. How do you you manipulate the genome? Ideally, what you want to do is sequester those genes, you know, shut them off, wrap them up, and and close them down. Mm -hmm. And that's, by and large, what epigenetics does. That's how, you know, your cells make different decisions to become skin cells or blood cells because whatever is not needed in your skin cells um, is, is basically closed down. Right. So in an ideal world, where we want to get to is we want to be able to use epigenetic therapies to very precisely manipulate our genome to turn on and off genes that allow cells to make organised decisions when they become stuck. Hmm. Now... You, you mentioned when you first came in here, you've got some new work. Um, this, this has just come out very recently with regards to the way you can track the drugs that we use in these therapies and so forth. Because I suppose with any of these sort of therapies, one of the things that I've always wondered is how do you monitor the dose relative to the person and how do you know where the dose goes in the body? And how do you, if you want a precise enough amount, you know, you put a thousand bits in here, how many bits get to that that part of the body that you need it? And if you can more precisely do that, you can minimise the side effects, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, how do you normally track that? And what have you just worked out in this um, research you've just published in the last few weeks? So great question. And by and large, it's those questions that drove us to to generate this research. You mm-hmm. know, um, as a clinician, when I see patients, one of the big frustrations is I don't know what happens to the drug once we administer it. Mm. We're blinded to right. that. You know, um, we make certain assumptions and we're guided by certain measurements. For instance, we may be able to take a blood test and say how much drug is circulating around in your plasma. 
But that doesn't tell you how much drug gets into the tumor cell. Mm. And that doesn't tell you how much drug gets into our normal cells. How do we balance this degree of toxicity versus efficacy? So we wanted to change that. We wanted to develop ways in which we can start to track drugs. So we used a well-established method in chemistry called click chemistry to be able to change drugs so that we can now click on whatever we like, be it fluorochromes, be it you know, tags, et cetera, et cetera, to monitor exactly where in the cell your drug is going, yep. quantify how much drug is in your cells, and, and also be able to isolate the drug from the cells to understand what's the drug binding to in the cell. You know, what are the proteins that it's engaging with? Where in the genome is the drug going to? Um, so these are, you know, fundamentally important questions that were previously, we didn't really have the tools to be able to answer these, and we think we've developed some of these tools. Because this seems to be something, though, that's not just in cancer, but in other areas. One of the things I've always found amazing is with, for example, diabetes. You know, we give these people this massive big dose of insulin at certain times of day, and rather than sort of give it to them as they need it throughout the day in a sort of progressive way, we, we have this sort of one-shot bang, you know, off you go, and people with diabetes know that how they feel and they go up and down and, you know, it's a quite complicated scenario. But it's, it's the same sort of thing, you know, there's, there's no real careful planning of the way in which the drugs are administered. What, what do you think the outcome will be when you can do this effectively in patients? Because presumably, I mean, you're, you're a clinician and this is something where you, you should be able to monitor precisely what what amount of drug gets to the part of the body that you want it to get to so what i think what i think the research will do is is not necessarily change the type of drugs we give to patients mm-hmm. <clears throat> one of the big failings of developing new drugs if you think about how much research goes into new drug development against new targets etc only a minuscule fraction of that actually makes it into the clinical arena And that's because these drugs fall away in the process of clinical trials, Mm. by and large, because we don't really understand their, their, their limitations. We, we have somewhat of an arbitrary understanding of what their mechanism of action is in terms of what drives their efficacy. But we really don't understand that to a sufficient extent, nor do we understand the reasons that they don't work, what are the limitations of these drugs. And so I think what we've developed, the tools we've developed, will help in the preclinical assessment of the drugs much better. Mm. Using animal models, using cells and dishes, et cetera, et cetera, we'll be able to get a much better understanding of the you know, efficacy and frailties of these drugs before we transition them into the clinical arena. Yeah. Mark, I'm wondering to what extent does this new understanding or new technology change the way we diagnose conditions as well? Is it something that is advanced by that or are we still waiting for something to go really wrong? Um, it, the, the, the ability to trace the drugs won't necessarily improve our diagnostic um, acumen, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what it will do is potentially help. You know, we live in an era whereby, you know, the ambition is personalised medicine. Right. Um, and, and it may help to understand, you know, differences between pharmacogenomics, et cetera, et cetera, and how, you know, different people metabolize drugs to sure. different extents. We, we, it, 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 just that ability to be able to trace the drug now in a very granular way yeah. to be able to quantify it, that opens up new possibilities. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff, Mark. I was wondering whether you thought particular types of cancer would respond better to to this sort of, I don't want to say the word breakthrough, but development more than others. Some cancers will be more 
you'd want to try this out with some cancers first more than others? So, so let me give you an indication of what one of the things that we've been able to do. So we have, we have used a mouse model of acute myeloid leukaemia, my, my lab. So I'm a clinician, I'm a haematologist. I work primarily with patients who have leukaemia and in particular acute myeloid leukaemia. This so, is, so that's, so Mark, that's, that's blood cancer, that's isn't it? Blood, blood cancer. cancer. Yeah. yeah, that's a blood cancer that, that and this is a, this is a cancer that is extraordinarily aggressive. Mm. Um, thankfully, it's quite rare. But even with the best advances in medicine and science, we still only cure about 20 to 25% pa- percent mm. of patients with this. Okay. So, you know, the, 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 the need, the therapeutic need is fast. Mm. And so we have a mouse model of one of these types of leukemias, and we noticed that when we dosed it with a particular drug and we were using an epigenetic therapy, that the drug was very good at clearing the leukemia cells from that were circulating around in the blood that were resident in an organ called the spleen. But for some reason that was that we, we weren't able to understand at that particular time, it didn't really clear the leukemia from the bone marrow. Now, with the new development of being able to trace the drug, we were now able to dose that mouse model and quantify how much drug Mm. gets into these various cells in these various compartments. And Mm. we were shocked to find that actually very little drug is getting into the leukemia cells within the bone marrow. Yeah. 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 So what we don't understand is why. Right? Sure. But but mm. but we now understand that that's probably one of the major limitations. So that immediately leads to you know if we were doing this preclinically as we are, let's develop better drugs that are more bone marrow penetrating, mm. right? Mm. Um, but let's also try and understand why it doesn't get into that compartment. Is it something about is it being metabolized more? Is there you know uh, is there barriers towards it being absorbed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Mark, just just to finish off, I mean. There must be a huge back catalogue of potential pharmaceuticals that have been just swept aside partway through the trials processes because of lack of efficacy or, you know, we look, 20% of patients just did amazingly well on this drug, but 20% we're not going with that. And there's a lot of financial aspects involved. Does this mean you know, there's sort of a, a big potential for you to go back now and look at some of those old drugs and sort of say, you know, maybe there's a good reason why this didn't work for that particular cancer because that drug never made it to the part of the body that we were... I mean, is that is that part of the goal now is to go back and just have a look? Because there's, there's such a massive back, back catalogue of these, these pharmaceuticals. Absolutely. You know, that lack of fundamental mechanistic understanding has driven failure of so many medicines. Mm. But, you know, we've had a resurgence of some of these. You know, a great example of this is thalidomide. Yeah, you know, right. You know, yep. everyone, dev- everyone knows the problems that thalidomide mm. causes. But this, this drug has revolutionized the treatment of patients with an aggressive blood cancer called multiple myeloma. Right. Now, only through mechanistic understanding do we now know how the drug works. Why did it actually cause those problems for fetal development, yet why does it work so effectively in this this cancer? Mm. And now this drug is going through a major renaissance period, mm. right, mm. Where, where, you know, brothers, sisters of thalidomide are being developed at rapid rates because it is one of the most effective drugs in this cancer. Mm. You know, so I think there's a real opportunity to go back and look at lots of these things and work out how, how they worked and what were the problems that they caused and yeah. why did they do it. Now, look, it, it's fascinating, Mark. And um, as I've said with many of the cancer guests, oncologists and researchers alike that we've had on the show, it feels as though there's a bit of a 10-year horizon at the moment where this stuff is 
you know, getting to the point of being really sorted out. And we're just, we're just seeing so many different and very new styles of therapies coming in, which is very exciting. So thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today and good luck with this ongoing work. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Professor Mark Dawson is from the Centre for Cancer Research at the University of Melbourne and part of the uh, Sir Peter Mac Department of Oncology. Uh, we're going to take a break in a moment, but before we do, we do actually have a giveaway. I should mention first, though, because uh, Chris KP is going to read out the giveaway and his band, Ologism. 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 Yeah, Softism. Softism. Um, has a show coming up, uh, Science as Nature Didn't Intend, which, if you know Chris KP, is appropriate. <laughs> um, uh, when's it on, Chris? Is it Wednesday? This Wednesday night. The 12th at 7.30 at the Royal Society of Victoria, 8 Latrobe Street. Tickets are $15, so uh, get on board. I guess they can Google ologism.com yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and find all the details. And you'll see Chris KP there. Uh, I think he sings. Anyway. <laughs> Among many other things. Among many things. <laughs> uh, we have another giveaway, though, Chris. And Chris will be taking your calls in just a moment for this one. Oh, thanks for telling me that. Yeah, good. That, that, was, that was Dr. Shane advising me of what I'm about to do. About to do. Just leap out of the studio. I'd get Jen to do it, but she's coughing her guts out of the back of the studio. <laughs> you don't want to talk to Jen on the phone right now. That's yeah. true. Uh, so we, we have four double passes for Grand Old Twang, which is happening on Saturday, the 15th of July, which is next Saturday. Did I get is that? Yes. yes. Next Saturday. Thank you. That's good maths. Excellent. Um, so next Saturday, 15th of July, from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. here in the Triple R um, performance space, uh, hosted by Denise Highlands and Tim Thorpe and a whole bunch of guests from around Australia and also overseas, including a couple from the US. Um, so if you want to get along to Grand Old Twang, um, then give us a call for obviously subscribers only. Give us a call now um, and we'll uh, and we'll. Oh, and the phone's lighting up right now. Okay, so I better run outside. Am I getting that right? <laughs> yeah, you are. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. And we're going to give you some science news. Do you want to start, Lyndon? I can start if you like. Yeah, let's yeah, do that. Right. Chris KP's back. I think he's a bit frazzled, though, after all those phone calls. <laughs> Talking to all those fans. Yeah. <laughs> Every single one of them phoned up about his band. Don't, don't tell the, the station that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to make you feel better because I know no one did. Thank you. <laughs> Lyndon? <laughs> okay, well, this is sort of vaguely related to bands, I suppose, mm. but I wanted to start with a quick question first. Have a little bit of a think about it. So if you were a male bird and you wanted to attract a female bird... <laughs> <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> I don't think this is hard for Chris to imagine what at all, is it? What would you do? Last week we heard about fairy wrens who turn mm. themselves blue to get the ladies mm. going. You know, some birds sing a special song or do a dance or they show their lovely feathers. But a new paper that's come out recently from Australian researchers has found out that a species of cockatoo that lives in northern Queensland uh, plays a sick beat. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought a cockatoo nice. would be like, look at this power line I just brought down. <laughs> How many people can do that? <laughs> How destructive. Well, la- ladies don't love that. No, they they're not it. a huge fan. <laughs> So this palm cockatoo lives up in northern Queensland. It's big, it's black, and it's got red cheeks. And researchers have found that these birds can actually create tools. They either use a stick or they use a seed pod, and they they play a regular beat with these instruments. So they it's not sort of a... Um, a mechanical thing that they do where they use gravity or they use their arm as a pendulum. It's a deliberate, mm. rhythmic, regular beat. And, and do, do individual birds have 
different ones? Like, are there... You bet they do, oh, Chris. Yeah, they do. So the res- these researchers are from ANU and Deakin and also the University of Queensland. They spent seven years studying these birds. They looked at 131 sequences from 18 different males and they found that each one had their own different beat. And signature beat. Yeah, their own yeah, signature nice. beat. And this, the thing that's really cool is that the palm cockatoos are the only other species apart from us that create their own drumsticks to make noise. So um, other animals, other birds, chimpanzees, even sea lions, they can get on board with a beat Mm. or they can sort of bang out a rhythm using their Mm. body, but these are the only other species (coughs) that create instruments and then use that to tap out a regular rhythm. Very cool. Isn't that fascinating? It's physical stuff. I presume it works too. They do attract females, right? Yeah. 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 Well, they're breeding. Yeah, they're monogamous, they're made for life. But is it because of the... Of the drumming, though, is what I'm getting at. <laughs> I that's it's probably amazing. a fairly hard yeah, question yeah. to answer. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, I, yeah. okay. It's got I mean, something they are, to do with it. They're amazing birds, though. I've seen them in the wild up in Cape York, and they're extraordinary birds. They're huge, and they make an incredible, raucous noise. You know, you think white cockies, think mm. much, much, much bigger bird, much more noise. So the wow. fact they're drumming as well yeah. as calling. It's and really well, sometimes cool. they combine, there are videos you can see that accompany the paper. Sometimes they combine the beat with a bit of a neck dance oh, yeah. or they yeah. sing, but sometimes it's just a Solo guy, just <laughs> strumming it out, just having a beat. But he's got to be holding <laughs> his drumstick in his beak. So no, he holds it in his hand, in his claw. How insane that! It's in his claw. Yeah, holds cool. it in his claw. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. Fine stuff. Yeah. Dr. Jen, beat Well, there. something totally different. Hey. <laughs> uh, okay, who's going to give me a beat? Or maybe I should wrap it while you guys beat. Oh, please. Please continue. <laughs> no, I won't subject you to that. <laughs> so I want to tell you about some really fascinating research that came out this week talking about the link between um, our sense of smell, well, I should say mice, mouse's sense of smell and their metabolism. So imagine you've got two groups of mice, one that has a normal, all the mice have a normal sense of smell, one that have temporarily lost their sense of smell via human intervention, and you feed them a really high-fat diet for three months and you watch what happens. And it turns out that after three months, the mice who've got a suppressed sense of smell weigh significantly less than the ones who have a normal sense of smell. And so you go, oh, well, hang on. When I get a cold and I can't taste anything, I don't eat much Mm. either. I just, you know, I don't have any appetite. So that would explain it. But no, that doesn't explain it at all. The two groups of mice ate exactly the same amount of high fat food. Neither group exercised more than the other. It just turns out that there is this extraordinary link we've just discovered between your sense of smell or a mouse sense of smell and their metabolism. So it's somehow to do with the way their Mm. body is metabolizing food and how they're perceiving food. We don't fully understand. Stand it, Hang yes. on. Are you saying the secret to weight loss could be a pig? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Well, <laughs> we don't we don't know yet, but that's I mean that's part of where this research is heading. Saying if somehow it's the way you perceive food in terms of you, the way you smell it influences the the mechanisms going on inside your body about whether you store fat or whether you burn fat, it may be that well, one of the I'm potential cures for obesity is is not having a decent sense I of give smell. It, I give it a, a week before there is some dodgy pig like. <laughs> For sale on late yeah. night television, or just an ointment that you, uh, a sort of a, a eucalyptus type ointment <laughs> that plug. prevents you right. from smelling anything but that. But isn't smell really closely connected to taste? Yeah, so the secret absolutely. to weight loss is not, not to, to taste, taste your food, not to enjoy it. But I think the point of this research is it's <laughs> just not eat dull food. Yeah, yeah no. But great. the point of the research is it's more complicated than yeah, it's actually yeah, yeah. Re- rewiring mm. the metabolism mm, so that your body is somehow perceiving a different that you're con- you're consuming a different amount of food and therefore mm. you should burn this. 
fat rather than store this fat. And we don't really understand the wiring of what's going on yet, but it's, there's yep. clearly a, a very strong link between the, the smell centres in our brain and our metabolism, so which that, is amazing. That statement people make where I can put on weight just looking at that stuff, <laughs> yeah. they actually meant just smelling, smelling that stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah very yeah, interesting. Very nice. Chris KP? Uh, I, I have a very slightly related story, actually. <laughs> Um, and by that I mean not related at all. Um, but a, a study that was uh, published recently in the uh, Journal of Psychomatic Medicine, Psychosomatic Medicine, sorry, um, they did something interesting. So we've known for a long time and we're, every day there's more research telling us how important our gut microbiota are um, and we're studying them and looking at the influences. These guys basically took faecal samples from 40 women Wait for it. That's not the good bit. And then they subjected them to uh, a series of images whilst in an MRI mm-hmm. and looked at the regions of their brain that were lighting up and, in fact, the in fact the, the, the structure of their brains. And what they found is that of the 40 women, so it's quite a small study, 33 of them um, basically had an increased number of bacterioides bacteria in their gut. Seven of them, so an even smaller sample, um, had an increased number of um, Fredovella bacteria in their gut. Um, what they showed is differences in brain structure that mm. corresponded to those two different kinds of gut uh, bacteria. Yeah, that old link. Yeah, and so this, this is the crazy mm. thing. Yeah, so they're basically saying, that, but, but the women, the, those seven women that had the um, the, the high levels of um, Fredovella, had more connections between emotional, attentional, and sensory brain regions than the others. Now, of course, what we don't know is whether this is gut causing brain connection or brain connection, you know, influencing yeah, gut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's total. It's small. It's early, and it's totally uh, correlation, not causation. But I love the fact that what's inside your gut might be literally affecting the structure of your head. Yeah. Wow! Is yeah. there a reason Watch they? Is there is there a reason they looked at women only? No, I don't know. Um, I think I think it was an attempt to try and make the sample size as realistic as possible to sort of mm-hmm. control as much as they can because mm-hmm. it's extra- yeah. two extraordinarily complex things. But yeah. I don't really know. Cool stuff. Well, folks, we're going to have to leave it there. We've got a couple of station announcements to play before we go. Lyndon, thanks so much. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Seeing you again soon, I think. Yes. Yes. Uh, Dr. Dr. Jim. She's got no idea. She's just smiling. I don't know where to be. I'm just going to hang out every Sunday until you ask me to leave. Just turn up. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Jane, good to see you too. You too, Dr. Shane. Thank you. Get rid of the cough. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Sorry to whoever I annoyed. And Chris KP, good to have you back from your holidays. Well, we didn't know she was going, but anyway. I know. um, Still good to have you back in the studio. We'll leave it there. Chat to you again (laughs) next week, folks. Thanks for listening in. This is Einstein at Go This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.